Welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Jeannie Hareska, Senior Advisor for Communications and Strategy at ACS, and your host for this episode about the process for filling a Supreme Court vacancy. Now, I know process stories can be akin to going to the dentist, but the Senate confirmation process is one of the most consequential, given the impact that a single justice can have on the court and on our laws and legal systems for decades. The upcoming confirmation process for filling Justice Breyer's seat is poised to be particularly historic as President Biden has committed to nominating the first Black woman to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court confirmations are headlining events in Washington no matter what. They drive the news cycle and consume the Senate's attention. But just what does the confirmation process look like behind the scenes? Beyond the TV cameras of the public hearing, what goes into putting a justice on the Supreme Court? Because the confirmation process for the last three justices added to the court were anything but normal. Two involved a complete disregard for Senate norms, and one involved serious allegations of sexual misconduct and perjury. All three came down to party line or nearly party line votes. So as we look ahead to this upcoming confirmation, many of us are asking whether it's even possible to have a smooth sailing, rule complying Senate confirmation process anymore, specifically one that results in a bipartisan vote. Or are we destined for every Supreme Court confirmation process to be politicized and hyperpartisan? I couldn't think of someone better positioned to talk to about the confirmation process, including the norms, the politics, and the behind-the-scenes machinations than a former senator who voted on six Supreme Court nominations during his tenure in the Senate. And that's ACS President Russ Feingold. Russ spent 18 years as the U.S. Senator to Wisconsin, with 16 of those years spent on the Senate Judiciary Committee. During his tenure, he participated in the confirmation processes for Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Alito, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Chief Justice John Roberts. I'm grateful to have him here today as we look ahead to this historic confirmation. Russ, welcome back to Broken Law. It's good to be back. It's an excellent podcast. Why, thank you. So before we get into the process of it all, I would like to take a minute to talk about Justice Breyer and his legacy on the court. You had the honor of voting for his confirmation in 1994. What are your reflections on that process and on the justice's tenure? I'll begin with just a personal reference because, you know, I didn't know him very well personally. But the the main encounter I had with him was a couple of years ago when I was visiting professor at Yale Law School. And there was a gathering there of these distinguished jurists from around the world, including two of the members of the United States Supreme Court, one being Justice Breyer. And I had made a point about the treaties and the law. And I thought, you know, I was a little intimidated by the group I was in front of. During the break, Justice Breyer came over to me and in the most open-minded way, asked me more questions and wanted to know more about my thought process on it. And it was a very positive, very personal discussion where I really saw his open-mindedness, which I think has been one of his great qualities. I mean, to me, his 27 years on the Supreme Court and his 14 years of service on the First Circuit Court of Appeals were really marked by the characteristics that define a thoughtful jurist somebody of great intellect and integrity. He believed in focusing on the Constitution's democratic objective and stressed the importance of considering, you know, the the practical consequences when you're interpreting the Constitution. So I was pleased to vote for Justice Breyer's confirmation to the Supreme Court early in my time in the Senate. And I praise his commitment to interpreting the Constitution as a living document 
influenced by the context of the times in which we live. Justice Breyer's career overlaps with the Supreme Court's transition, though, from a more apolitical, deliberative body to one that you have to say is a hyper-partisan body that is driven by the conservative supermajority's own ideology. And I can't imagine that Justice Breyer is pleased by this development. So I think that's very true. The The last 27 years have really seen a market change in how the Supreme Court operates and in how the Senate goes about confirming people to the court. So let's get into that process. And I, and I want to start with kind of a simple question, which is the fact that Justice Breyer is still on the court. So we're getting ready to confirm a new justice when there's not technically a vacancy on the court yet. So how are we, how is this process unfolding when Breyer is still hearing and deciding cases? That's right, Jeannie. We'll, we'll talk more about the, the guts of this and how it all unfolds, but sort of this starts at the end of the story. And it's a valid question. And the answer really has mostly to do with paperwork. When the Senate confirms a nominee, they send paperwork to the president, informing him that his nominee has been uh, confirmed. Uh, it is that document that actually makes the confirmation official, in so much as the confirmed nominee assumes their new role. In this case, the Senate will simply hold off sending that paperwork, sending that document to the president, until the end of the Supreme Court's term, which is in late June, when Justice Breyer intends to vacate his seat and retire if his seat has been filled. Okay, that's nice. You can kind of prepare for the transition in advance then. So let's talk about the the president's commitment. He stated during his presidential campaign that he would nominate a black woman to the court if given the chance. Uh, And following Justice Breyer's announced retirement, the president has reaffirmed that commitment. There's been criticism from the right about this commitment that that Biden would specify what type of person he would he would nominate. What do you make of, of President Biden's commitment? Well, I and the American Constitution Society think that this attack against uh, President Biden's commitment to nominating a black woman and, and about potential nominees is just plain wrong. Such attacks serve only to underscore the systemic racism and oppression that black women have consistently faced in this country. And it further highlights how unrepresentative our highest court has been throughout our history and why it's imperative that we prioritize diversity on our courts. Think of it, not a single African-American woman in well over 200 years. We applaud the president's commitment and very much look forward to the first black woman justice on our court. And, you know, let's face it, President Biden isn't the first president to make this kind of a commitment when it comes to whom he will nominate to the court. President Reagan promised to put the first woman on the Supreme Court, which he did, with Sandra Day O'Connor. Even President Trump promised that he would nominate a woman to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat, which he did. So we believe it's imperative for the legitimacy of our federal judiciary that our courts reflect the diversity of the public they serve. And the reality is that the Supreme Court has never done this and does not currently. The Supreme Court has never had a black woman justice, and we look forward to this changing very soon. 
Let's hope uh, it would be truly, truly historic and long overdue. So getting into the confirmation process itself, the politics surrounding Senate confirmations have changed dramatically since 1992 when you were first elected to the Senate. Can you talk about the evolution of of these confirmation processes, recognizing that some of the most partisan and and egregious changes have come only in the last few years? But how do you describe what the confirmation process used to be versus what the last few have looked like? Well, that's an accurate description of, of the change, Jeannie. It has been very recent, but very disastrous. The process today, or at least the process that we witnessed for the last three justices that were put on the court, is just antithetical to how these confirmation processes used to play out. Justice Breyer uh, was actually the second justice I voted to confirm in the Senate. Like today, we had a Democratic president at the time, and Democrats had control of the Senate, and still, Breyer was confirmed by a very large bipartisan vote of 87 to 9 which would be unheard of today, unfortunately. At the time, though, it was routine to have broad bipartisan votes to confirm Supreme Court justices in most cases. The Senate generally respected the president's choice, and confirmation processes generally looked alike one to the next. Now, that isn't to say that there weren't times when people didn't get through. Lyndon Johnson couldn't get uh, Abe Fortas to be elevated to chief justice because of a corruption issue. Richard Nixon had a couple of people that Uh, turned out to be real duds and when their backgrounds were checked, so they didn't make it. Famously, Robert Bork uh, didn't get advanced because of a concern about his extremely conservative views, which Senator Kennedy said would take us back to a couple of centuries ago. But the process itself was normal. The way in which it was handled in the Senate was normal. The norms were respected. In fact, I think it would have been unfathomable for Senate norms to be as egregiously violated in the early 1990s as they have been in recent years with those three people put on the court during a Republican-controlled Senate. So before we talk about the norms and how much they've changed specifically, let's talk about the law. What does the Constitution actually say in terms of Supreme Court confirmations? Well, the Constitution, as you know, is a pretty short document, and it, it, it doesn't say a whole lot about this, as it turns out. The Constitution states only that justices shall be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate per the same advise and consent clause that applies to all other executive nominations in the same paragraph. The Constitution says nothing about what that advise and consent process should look like, which means the process is largely run by Senate rules and norms. And under the Constitution, under Article 1, Section 5, the rules of the Senate are left up to the Senate and the rules of the House are left up to the House. They are not dictated. It is given to the bodies to determine their own rules for how they're going to proceed. So to put it in layman's terms, what does it mean for the Senate to revise and consent on a Supreme Court nomination? Well, it means in strict terms that the Senate votes whether to confirm an executive nominee or not. And the idea is, of course, that the the nominee is given consideration and, and advice is given and not simply an up or down vote. So just to be clear, there's no threshold then or requirement for what advice looks like. It could be as little or as meaningful as the Senate decides. And I'm assuming it kind of changes nomination to nomination. I mean, it could be. I think that would be unfortunate. I think a a real process where 
particularly members of the Judiciary Committee, get a real chance to get to know the nominee, meet with them, and then ask them questions, and then the whole Senate consider it as the right process. I do think it was a violation of advising consent when Mitch McConnell refused to consider Merrick Garland at all when there were no hearings. So I, I consider that going against the advice portion of the process. And on, on the flip side, do you think it constituted sufficient advice given the pace that Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed in 2020? It was a matter of days. Absolutely not. I mean, my experience on this is that uh, there is a process where the president or the White House counsel calls up members of the Senate, particularly members of the Judiciary Committee, one time I was called by a White House counsel. One time I was called by President Obama. You know, I realized they probably already figured out who they're going to nominate, but there is this process and discussion. And in one case, I actually said, look, it's your choice to President Bush's person. But if you put a certain person forward, I'll be working hard to stop that nomination. And that message was received. So, yeah, just quickly nominating somebody and jamming it through like they do with Amy Coney Barrett is the opposite of what I consider to be a minimum requirement for the advice portion. So let's talk about the confirmation process, and we'll we'll start at the beginning. The president announces his nominee to the court. We all know it. The Senate knows it. What happens in the Senate? How does the confirmation process actually begin from the Senate standpoint? Well, the judicial nominations are handled by the Senate Judiciary, which means that it's the committee members who are responsible for vetting the nominee holding the confirmation hearing for that nominee, and then eventually voting in committee whether or not to approve the nominee and then send the nomination to the Senate floor for a final vote. Now, this process, when done right, can be and often is very time-consuming, taking weeks and sometimes even months. This is interesting to me. It's your job as as members on the Senate Judiciary Committee to vet a nominee. Are you you talking about a Supreme Court nominee essentially having to do job interviews with individual senators? Well, in a lot of ways, that's what it is. Senators on the Judiciary Committee are allowed to have one-on-one meetings with the nominee. They're usually about an hour, during which time the senator can ask just about anything. And with the most common topics being the nominee's opinion on certain specific Supreme Court cases or issues, might be about prior decisions if they are currently or previously judges in other courts. And then in general, their perspective on the law more broadly. And then, of course, this is the private meeting, but then there's the opportunity in front of the cameras to ask questions later on at the confirmation hearing. And I'm assuming that the the staff of a, of a senator on the committee are doing just boatloads of, of research and work pulling up, you know, if it's a judge being nominated, all of their decisions, there just must be piles of, of paperwork and research put into a, a proper vetting process. Is that right? Oh, there's no question. The amount of work is is huge. And and they can't leave any stone unturned because I mean this is this is a lifetime appointment and a lot of these folks are pretty young. So really a mistake can't be made. In fact, you know, this there was both the Clarence Thomas and the and the Kavanaugh situations where information sort of came forward as the process was underway and really caused the process to be diverted uh, for a while because uh, it is very hard to dig up everything on a person. Yeah. So I I have a question just based on my own experience, obviously, is only watching public confirmation hearings. And it's always struck me in those hearings that you're not actually learning a whole lot. You know, so often senators ask about 
specific Supreme Court cases or issues and a nominee defers, noting, right, they, they can't answer a question about an issue that may come before them on the court. And so they essentially avoid answering a lot of the questions. Are nominees any more forthcoming in the, the private one-on-one meetings that, that you have with a nominee outside of the hearing than they are during the hearing? Yes and no. I mean, a little bit. For the most part, no. But away from the cameras, sometimes you can get a bit more clarity or a little bit of body language or an expression that gives you information you might not get in a hearing. Most nominees are mindful that basically anything they say to one senator could possibly be brought up at the public hearing. So they tend to be pretty tight-lipped. And, of course, famously, uh, Professor Kagan, who is now Justice Kagan, wrote an article complaining about the lack of answers that were given. Uh, And, of course, she had to face that that article when she was nominated and was instructed to say nothing. It was a pretty funny exchange because she said, well, I've changed my mind. But she made a big deal out of the fact that you got very little information at these things. What a, it's an interesting thing to be on both sides of the table for her in that regard. Uh, but you, you've been through this process six times, as, as we mentioned. How did you approach your one-on-one interviews? I mean, what, when you went into an interview, are you looking for answers about precedent and decisions, or are you really looking at character and the values of, of the nominee? Well, in the case of the six justices, I was only on judiciary for the last four. So the first two I was not yet on. So I didn't have them individual meeting, but I did with with the two from Bush and the two from Obama. And, you know, of course, I tried to get some response about precedent and decisions, but that's exceedingly difficult. So I tended to focus it more on getting a sense of a person's character and values. And this is where uh, I ended up making a real distinction between two Bush nominees, one being Chief Justice Roberts and the other one, Sam Alito. I mean, they're both so conservative compared to me, it's almost ridiculous. But there seemed to be a difference. And I really got a sense of that in the meeting in my office. Justice Roberts, although very, very, Judge Roberts at the time, although very conservative, seemed to have a real sense of the history of the court and the fact that if he's Chief Justice, his responsibility would be to really consider the credibility and legitimacy of the court going forward. And it's one of the reasons I ultimately voted for him, because I knew we might get somebody who was much less concerned about that as chief justice if he wasn't confirmed. Alternatively, Justice Alito, although he was certainly Judge Alito at the time, certainly polite, he seemed very close-minded, very uninterested in talking about the court as an institution, and much more concerned about his conservative agenda and not telling me anything. So I did find sort of getting a sense of the character of what make people make what makes people tick to be the most valuable opportunity in those one-on-ones. Yeah, and that seems like something that would be hard to do in in a public hearing, which I want to talk to about for a second. I've always struggled with with public hearings because so much of it can just feel like theater. Sometimes on both sides, on both the part of senators and and the part of the nominee. So I'm going to ask you while I have the chance, how much of a public confirmation hearing is actually about senators trying to glean more information and how much is about the TV cameras? Again, so often these confirmation hearings involve senators asking long, complicated questions only to be met by a, a short non-answer answer by the nominee. So, so how much of this is informative and how much of this is politics? Fair question. Look, 
You are you have these staff members that say to you, look, Senator, you get a half hour in front of the cameras in the whole country. How do you want to use it? In other words, to convey a message about yourself and about what you view. So, yes, there is that element of it. And sometimes it's abused and sometimes it's used well. Unfortunately, there can be a lot of grandstanding by senators during these hearings. On the other hand, sometimes it really shows if there's a number of senators asking the same kind of questions, it can show an area of concern that senators have. And in the case of the Bush appointees, the enormous concern about the abuse of executive power under President Bush became a major theme in these confirmation hearings, even though they weren't always simply about a specific question that fit the nominee. But, you know, having said that, I always sought to use the hearings for two reasons, primarily. One, I did try to garner more information from the candidate, maybe asking about information that my staff and I had learned since I interviewed the nominee. The public hearing is often weeks after a senator meets with a nominee, so a lot of information can have come to light in between. And second, you know, I tried to get on the record the information that I would, you know, use to decide my vote. I wanted my constituents to see what my concerns were about a nominee or to see why I might support or oppose a nominee. So this could involve drawing out details about a nominee's judicial experience, prior decisions or positions, or even personal feelings on issues, for example, like the death penalty, where they may not want to talk about the cases. But I tried to get them to talk about the practice and their personal feelings about it. That's really helpful. And this really all just underscores to me how much of the vetting process really does happen behind the scenes in the weeks prior to the public hearing and to the final confirmation vote. So I'm curious to talk to you more about what that process looks like. When you have those few weeks between the nomination and and a confirmation vote, are senators talking to each other? Are you comparing notes? Are you kind of foreshadowing how you might vote? And is is there a real internal discussion privately amongst senators? There is quite a bit. It certainly gets discussed in the so-called partisan political caucuses that are held on Tuesdays in the Senate and the Republican and Democratic side. In particular, the Democratic members and the Republican members of the Judiciary Committee have strategy sessions. And, you know, it'd be nice if it wasn't partisan in this way, but that's the way it is, uh, because these nominations can be very contentious. But there are careful meetings to talk about the process. Then what occurs during that time also is consultation from the White House sometimes. Under President Bush, he had uh, Harriet Myers call me up and ask my view of the various nominees. She was the White House legal counsel. President Obama uh, did it himself with regard to his nominees and would call up and say, you know, what, Russ, what do you think? And as I said, you know, I think he knew he wanted to appoint, but it was nice to have the president call up. So that sort of goes on during this time as well in the spirit of advice and consent. Do you you have the advantage of of having been through this many times and seeing, you know, the benefits and the cons and what works and what doesn't. Do you think there's a way to reconfigure the process to improve it, maybe to elicit actual answers from a nominee, including during the public hearing? And I ask this in part because the, the Trump administration's had multiple judicial nominees for lower federal courts who, during their confirmation processes, refused to answer a question about whether Brown v. Board of Education was rightly decided. And we've talked about this on a previous podcast episode, but I'm going to ask you, shouldn't judicial nominees be required to answer that type of a question? And I mean, with with a yes or no answer, there just seems to be certain questions that require an answer if you're going to be put on the court. 
Yeah, look, there wouldn't be many where you could expect somebody like this to give a yes or no answer. But the example you've given of Brown versus Board of Education should be one. It was egregious to see some judicial nominees skirt the question about Brown versus Board. Having judicial nominees express agreement with that decision really should be expected. And any disagreement, you know, should be a disqualifier, in my view. That said, I don't think it's possible to require nominees literally to answer specific questions, at least not with specific substance. Instead, I think senators and the public need to factor in a nominee's refusal to answer certain questions. Sometimes I could understand why a nominee deferred on a question, but I also made notes when a nominee refused to answer questions that I thought were perfectly straightforward. It can't help but make you a bit suspicious. A lot can be gleaned from which questions a nominee avoids answering directly. And there is a problem that Justice Kagan, when she was Professor Kagan, wrote about, that this process looks pretty light and uninformative to the public. And so people like Arlen Specter, the former chairman of the Judiciary Committee from Pennsylvania, the late senator from that state, thought about using the Senate rules to figure out a way to require nominees to respond to a certain extent or not take up their nomination. That is something the Senate could do under its Senate rules power. So I want to talk about the type of question, maybe. If we can't force an answer, maybe we can talk about what sorts of questions should be asked in this this new political reality we're living in. The Supreme Court's public approval rating is declining, evident by polling as recent as last fall. And part of their declining approval is the sense that justices are really just politicians in robes, increasingly political And maybe that is what they have become. Maybe judges are politicians in robes and maybe they always have been and we're just starting to acknowledge it. But more and more of the court's decisions seem to be decided along the party lines of the justices. So if this is the reality, if justices are going to behave like politicians, should we treat them as such? And and I ask this to mean, should they be asked about their political ideology or even their party affiliation, right? As a senator, you had to declare a party. You ran on a party ticket. Should judicial nominees have to state their political ideology? You know, that's another fair question. And I really regret that, that this has come to this point because I didn't grow up thinking this way, but things have changed given how partisan the court has become. It's, it's just really hard to look at the current Supreme Court and see the conservative supermajority's decisions as anything other than advancing a pre-cooked, strictly partisan agenda. And if justices are going to be guided in part or at times exclusively, it seems, by politics, we may get to the point where senators should be asking a nominee to confirm their political ideology or partisan affiliation or at least answer questions about their past affiliations. You know, the goal of a confirmation here. I believe, is to assess how a potential justice will reach a decision in a case and whether they can be unbiased. If the answer instead is partisanship, that should be known to the public. You are listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. ACS is a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization committed to protecting our democratic legitimacy and supporting laws and legal systems that improve the lives of all people. If you're enjoying Broken Law, consider becoming a member of ACS today. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member. Our laws and legal systems impact all of us. 
By joining ACS, you support Broken Law, our work to diversify the federal bench, our advocacy in support of Supreme Court reform, and truth, racial healing, and transformation, and so much more. You also become a member of our nationwide network, which includes over 250 student and lawyer chapters. Join ACS and the progressive legal movement today by visiting our website at acslaw.org backslash membership. And now back to the conversation. So we we have to talk about the last three confirmation processes, which were anything but norm complying. What do you make of how the Republicans ran the confirmation processes for Merrick Garland, who obviously was not confirmed, who didn't even receive a hearing, but then also the processes for for Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett? Look, I, I like to think of myself as, as fair minded and calling as I see him, regardless of party. And all I can say is what was done was shocking in light of my observation of this process very closely for many decades. Republicans threw Senate norms out the window starting in 2016 when they just plain refused to give Judge Merrick Garland, one of the most distinguished judges in the country, and President Obama's nominee to fill Justice Scalia's seat so much as a confirmation hearing. Republicans essentially stole Scalia's seat on the court by refusing to comply with longstanding Senate norms, which would have had the Senate fairly consider a Judge Garland, including with a confirmation hearing. Republicans could have voted him down, but to refuse to even hold a hearing or a vote was tantamount to theft, in my view. Similarly, the very rushed confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett in 2020 made another mockery of the process. The confirmation vote was held just days after Justice Ginsburg passed away and while people were already actively casting ballots in the presidential election. That vote wasn't about Barrett. It was about Republicans packing the court with another reliable conservative vote to advance their partisan agenda. So as you noted, those processes really just egregiously violated Senate norms but not necessarily Senate rules. And so there's been a lot of talk about how you could change Senate rules to actually prevent what happened with those three confirmation processes. Do you have thoughts on on how the the Senate could amend its rules to really enforce Senate norms, including, for instance, that a nominee at least receive a public hearing? That seems like a pretty minimal threshold and something that that the Senate could put into its rules. Yeah, I think we should have rules that aspire for a level of bipartisanship, but that also confronts the reality before us. We have to address the Republicans' theft of Justice Scalia's and Ginsburg seats. And that includes adding seats potentially, but also it includes imposing guardrails on the Senate process itself. And that would be what you're suggesting, Jeannie, namely by requiring within the Senate rules and the Senate makes this decision on its own, that the Senate act on a nomination within a certain amount of time, and then it hold a confirmation vote within a certain amount of time. So obviously the goal here is to prevent a rush process, like what we saw with Amy Coney Barrett, and a delayed process, a grossly delayed process, like that that was used to deny Merrick Garland so much as a confirmation hearing. So that's that's something I do think should be done. I like that idea. I just want to flesh it out a little more. So you're saying that essentially in the rules, and I'm going to make up numbers as just by way of example, is that the Senate not be allowed to hold a confirmation vote 
within like 30 days of the president making the nomination. So it, it would require at least a 30 day advice period, so to speak, before the Senate would be allowed to vote, which in theory w- would the goal of that would be to prevent the a nominee being jammed through at the last minute. Yeah, that's the idea. This is a matter of Senate rules. It's not a constitutional or statutory issue. The Senate can amend its rules anytime, assuming the votes are there. As we know, the filibuster has been amended several times. That's by Senate rule. And it's possible for uh, time restrictions to be imposed to make the process more rational and appear more fair. And if it doesn't work, you can amend it or eliminate those things later. That said, I do think it's worth imposing these time restrictions now. Mm-hmm. You cannot be making decisions by guessing what the Republicans might do next or in the future. We need to safeguard our democracy as best we can while we can. And I believe that means creating these types of guardrails around the Senate confirmation process. Now, ACS uh, is a nonpartisan group, but in this case, it appears that the only party that would be likely to do this would be the Democrats. But maybe some Republicans would go along with these changes because, let's face it, they may hope to be in the majority at some point and not be obstructed themselves. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the the problem with Senate rules is they can always be amended, including being improved or or the reverse. So it is possible, we've had this conversation with the filibuster, that if Democrats were to change Senate rules now to create these sorts of, of guardrails, Republicans in theory could come along and eliminate them and do as they please again. But they would have to do that publicly, right? The public would see them eliminate those rules. And there would be some, I like to use the word accountability, but it would at least be open that they are manipulating the system, not just by violating norms in that case, but actually changing Senate rules. That's right. I mean, look, it has to do with accountability, but I can tell you, just simply having these rules in place that as a general matter require a supermajority to change, uh, except for in, what's in the so-called nuclear option, it does make it hard uh, to disregard these. And sometimes people have an agenda, even on the other side of the aisle, of not wanting those rules to be unstable. So I think they could stick. It isn't necessarily the case that they would be changed every Congress. So that's how the Senate could change its rules. Let's talk about one of the other things that could change confirmation processes, and that's changing the Supreme Court itself. And you mentioned adding seats, but I want to talk about term limits. In, In the growing conversation about Supreme Court reform, one of the more common proposals is to eliminate lifetime tenure for Supreme Court justices and instead create 18-year term limits, which would, in theory, create a reliable turnover of justices, right? I mean, based on this notion, you would have a vacancy come up every two years. Every president would have two opportunities to, to fill seats. Do you think that predictability would change the politics of confirmation processes at all? You know, I do. I didn't used to think this way. I would not have liked this idea. But now what I've seen in terms of the politicization of the Supreme Court and the Senate confirmation process, I think that these kind of term limits probably make sense. Some ideas are to give every president the chance to fill at least two seats on the court, one every two years of a term. In theory, this could cut down on the partisanship because of the more frequent turnover of justices. Most uh, term limit proposals have the current justices grandfathered in, so they retained their life tenure, so they would still be there. So it, you know, it would take time before the term limits would have uh, the desired effect. 
And we should note that term limits would not address the rights court packing that they already did. ACS's strong recommendation is that the court reform include adding seats to the court now to remedy the rights packing of the court that I've already described. And then those new seats could then come along with term limits. You make a good point about the how long it would take for term limits to actually change anything. Because if you grandfather in the current justices, then we're at a minimum of 18 years before the new term limits would have an impact, right, in terms of mandating that somebody step down. And so it's definitely not a solution to any kind of current predicament that we're facing. It's not going to change the current confirmation politics. I I think there's a dynamism between the two that would be much more effective. The combination of adding seats and term limits together. Right, right. Yeah, as kind of a, a packaged deal to to reform the court and restore its credibility, to be honest. So given given that we're going to, the confirmation process that we're about to, to witness is going to unfold given current norms, current Senate rules, how do you expect it to play out? I feel pretty good. Now, I'm sort of an optimist by nature, and of course that Nature has been challenged in recent years <laughs> severely. Yes. But I do think this may work out well. Unlike the last three Supreme Court confirmations, I expect the Senate will comply with standard norms and procedures, as I described at the outset. And I'll tell you something there's nothing more important than showing people that once again, this process can be restabilized and these norms restabilized. The Senate confirmed dozens of lower court judges with bipartisan votes just in the past year. And we would hope to see similar bipartisanship in filling Justice Breyer's seat. I mean, just as an example, Katanji Brown-Jackson, who is one of the exceptionally qualified candidates being discussed in the press right now for the Breyer seat, was confirmed to the DC District Court for the District of Columbia just last June by a bipartisan vote, and actually for the appellate court. And Republican Senators Lindsey Graham and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski voted with Democrats to confirm her. And I hope we see even stronger bipartisan support for this historic confirmation of the Supreme Court. And speaking of these lower court judges, Jeannie, I want to also emphasize that there continues to be many vacancies on the lower courts. And we have have to expect that President Biden and the Senate will continue to move those along on a dual track. We can't just let that go as important as the Supreme Court seat is. I completely agree. And I really appreciate you you mentioning Senators Graham, Collins, and Murkowski, that we have had bipartisanship on judges in the last year, not on a Supreme Court confirmation, but on federal judges. So it would be really nice to see that bipartisanship not stop at the Supreme Court, so to speak. You, I mean, you've been following all the press coverage. There seems to be an openness to a bipartisan vote. So hopefully the public is putting pressure um, on senators for this as well. It would be nice to see unity as we, we make history with the Supreme court. You, you won't get, you won't get unanimity, but you might get some unity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I think back to the Breyer vote, right? I think he said it was 87 to nine. That just seems unheard of. I wouldn't wouldn't bet the farm on that one, Jeannie. Unfortunately. Yeah. That, that may be a historic vote for other purposes. 
But I want to end on, on a positive. We like to include calls to action on our episodes and end with, with optimism. So for listeners interested in engaging in this historic confirmation process or in advocating for the procedural changes that you recommended, what would you advise them to do? Well, speak up, speak up now. I mean, this is an exciting time. We think the first African-American woman ever on the Supreme Court, the chance to start reversing the co-optation of the Supreme Court by the far right. Voters and advocates should absolutely be active participants in this Supreme Court confirmation process. This process and the final result will impact all of us. If you don't believe it, think about what happened a couple of days ago with the court uh, undoing a lower court's ruling to protect uh, the rights of African-Americans in Alabama to not be the victims of gerrymandering. Whatever your preferred platform is, whether it's social media or letters to the editor, talk about this process and what you want to see happen with this vacancy. For our part, ACS is making clear that we look forward to the first Black woman justice. There are so many exceptionally qualified Black women who would make excellent justices. And I look forward to any one of them being nominated and confirmed soon. I want to end with one last question based on what you just said, which is really just the sheer impact of the Supreme Court. This is one of our continuous themes on this podcast is trying to just really underscore how consequential the Supreme Court is, because it's not in the news as often as the Senate is or, or President Biden is. And yet, in many respects, the Supreme Court is the most powerful branch of, of government right now. And you raised a great example of this. The Supreme Court has blessed gerrymandering and basically done so again this week. And so I, I want to give you a chance to just sell that point again, which is just why listeners, voters, advocates need to pay as much attention to the Supreme Court as they do to Congress. Well, you know, I hate having to say it, having devoted my life to the rule of law and trying to respect the Supreme Court as a symbol of the rule of law. It says on the building, equal justice under law. And, you know, that's not what we have now. What we now have is a court, as you're suggesting, that has intentionally undermined the right to vote, the most sacred right you can have in this country, and is now in the process of going after long-established constitutional rights. People have to realize that, of course, the other branches matter, who's president matters, who's in the Congress matters, who's in the state houses and the mayors matters. But as one of your recent podcasts pointed out, without the Supreme Court, and if the Supreme Court is completely compromised in a way that does not allow these things to be protected, you almost have nothing. And, and that is unfortunately what we're on the precipice of having right now. It's really scary. We talk a lot at ACS about democracy's moment of truth. And so much of that moment of truth is actually about the court and what is going to happen to the court in the in the coming months and years. So thank you again, Russ, for, for joining me on Broken Law. It's always great to talk to you, especially about such a consequential confirmation process coming up. And thanks to our listeners for finding Broken Law. Please be sure to follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll be talking more about the upcoming confirmation process and the other threats that are, are facing our democracy uh, this year, including regarding the upcoming November midterms. So all the more reason to follow and subscribe now. 
uh, and to recommend Broken Law to a friend so we can bring these important conversations to more listeners. You can find details and show notes about today's episode on our website, acslaw.org. And if you have ideas for future episodes, please let us know. You can email us at podcast at acslaw.org or find us on social media at acslaw. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not. Thank you.